What would happen if you changed the story of your life? And what would that ending be if you could write any kind of ending? This is your life. Take your place at center stage. Find your Welcome to Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women plus in theater take center stage in lives they love. I am your host, Emily Stamets, and this upcoming interview, it we talk a lot about story and the value of story and the role that story can play in our lives. Um, and use a lot of big words like narrative and whatnot. Um, but also what my conversation with this guest is has me thinking a lot about is um, the validity of all bodies in the world in general, but also on our stages and in our media. Um, and one thing that I've done since having this conversation with this guest, um, which was actually a long time ago, <laughs> so it's been months now, and I can say that it's had a positive impact on my life, um, is I have on Instagram, this is so simple, I have started following hashtags that people who look different than me might be using. So simple. So I follow, for instance, um, hashtag hijabi. Uh, I follow hashtag babe with a mobility aid, which is one of my favorites. Um, There's a lot of really, really good, really simple hashtags out there that have allowed me to diversify the bodies and the people that I am seeing in my social media feed. Um, because something that I've become very, very aware of is the fact that, I mean, you know, we all know this, that our media is very, um, you know, it's very white centric. It's very thin centric. It's very able-bodied centric. Um, and so when we then have interactions with like the real world and people with, uh, a, you know, a wide range of body types, um, it can be, it's easier to have those really shitty instinctual reactions that we've been socialized to have towards people who are fat or people who are uh, a people of color or people, you know, it's just all of the things that we've been socialized to have that are like the really shitty, unintentional jerk, you know, knee jerk reactions. Um, and I have found that diversifying my social media has really had a positive impact on the way that I respond to all of the different bodies in the world because my media is now much more diverse than just what I might see if I'm scrolling through Netflix, for example. So highly recommend that as like a really simple two minute adjustment to bringing different people into your eyeballs on a regular basis. Um, so <laughs> that being said, let me introduce my guest. Um, I am a total fan person about this guest. Her name is Kate Brown. Um, and in fact, she is a doctor. So I really like calling her Dr. Kate. So Dr. Kate Brown is, um, I saw her speak uh, a year and a half ago and was just blown away by her energy and her, the way she talks about, um, like everything about empowerment, about, uh, you know, being fat in the world, about, you know, just like so many things. Like she's just radiates intelligence and awesomeness. So I was so thrilled that she joined me on this podcast. Um, Here's who she is. (laughs) Um, Dr. Kate is, uh, here's how she describes herself. She says she helps change makers learn to love the spotlight. And I think you'll understand 
why, like how her personal experience has led to that mission statement when you hear her story um, in our interview. She's a speaker, coach, and a personal brand expert. She has a background in theater education and also writing pedagogy. She has a PhD in, this is really cool, autobiographical rhetoric, which is how people write and speak about themselves. So fascinating. Her writing about body image and popular culture has appeared in Runner's World, Refinery29, Plus, and Girls Gone Strong. She's also the lead speaker coach for TEDx Normal, um, a communication workshop facilitator, and a singer. So we talk about all of those things. Um, you can find her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I will link to all of those social media accounts in the show notes, but you can also just search for the at symbol at Dr. Kate Brown, and that is Brown with an E at the end. I'm really, really excited to share this conversation with you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, hi. So what is your doctorate in? I don't think I know. It that. is in English. Like the, the field is English. And awesome. then, um, but what I studied was autobiography. So oh. the, way, the way people talk and write about themselves. And what did, what do you think about that? What did you learn? <laughs> I, I learned that there are certain kinds of stories that we're allowed to tell about ourselves. And so we try to fit our experience into those story frames, whether or not that makes sense to do, or that's how we would choose to talk about ourselves or, or tell our stories. Interesting. Like what? So, so I'm thinking of like the hero's journey. That's kind like of that where my like narrative yeah. structure like yep, exactly. And there are, especially for women, there are like my, my object of study was the before and after story mm-hmm. as it relates to weight loss. Mm-hmm. So there's just one kind of way to tell that story. And there are even certain, it's down to the phrasing that we use and how, you know, you have to set it up chronologically where the, you're, you were bad and sad and broken before, and now you're like healthy and light and beautiful and you're living your best life. Whether or not your experience reflects that, that's when someone asks, that's how you're compelled to tell that story. Interesting. So. Did you look into what happens to people who break that mold at all? Yeah, they they don't tell weight loss stories. Like the story form is so constraining that it becomes something else. So I call them body-based autobiography because they're more about, you know, your experience of the body, whether or not it fits into the story. And so you don't even get lumped in as a success. And I think that's what keeps people from branching out or telling the story in a different way because you just can't. And the other thing is, as you know, story forms are so, um, they're so concretized that that's, that's what we expect. So you can't tell a story to people in a way they they're not expecting. You have to teach them how to hear your story before you can tell it. And that's just exhausting. Nobody wants to do that. (laughs) So my next project is thinking about the before and after story in all its forms, like the, from house flipping shows to cooking shows to all kinds of places where the before and after story is and my theory is that that's an acceptable story for women because unlike the hero's journey, you don't have to leave your house. You can stay right here and improve yourself and your, your domestic space. And that's, mm-hmm. that's how women are allowed to go on hero's journeys as long as it, it's all internal. Wow. 
Yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> I, I have mean, a friend like, who's in like such a beautiful, like, uh, um, topic of inquiry, but it's sad. That makes me. Yeah, sad. it really is. That. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a comics artist. He, he writes comic, he draws and writes. So he's got all kinds of experience with storytelling. And um, he was trying to say like, no, no, women can go on hero's journeys. Women can go on hero's journeys. And I was like, name one for me. It's like, um, brave. Like, well, she leaves and then is bad because she leaves and then learns a lesson that she should have just stayed and been a better person to begin with. Right. He's like, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what about I'm, what about Moana? Um, kind of again, you know, she's got that like you need. Uh, there's the pressure, you know, you got to stay here, you got to do the thing, and then she she leaves and comes back. She doesn't actually go anywhere, does she? She like goes mm, that's to true. an island. There, there's no change that happens for a different community or like has an impact on anyone else except her and her family her family and yeah. like huh. okay so anyone who's listening today if you can think <laughs> of examples of a hero's journey that is with a female protagonist <laughs> or a non-binary protagonist right that's right that's right and I you know I want to think about this certainly it's the media that I've seen but it's more about whose story isn't being represented in this hero's journey mm-hmm. or is the way, can we conceptualize a way of storytelling that kind of breaks out of these, these ways? And I think theater does that all the time. You know, it's not as, as popular as TV and movies, but uh, it's always looking for how do we tell stories in nonlinear ways, in uh, group ways, ensembles, episodic, you know, it plays with structure in a way that a lot, lots of other media doesn't do so mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not really looking for a taxonomy of like here are all the people who have gone on heroes journeys but right um you know what can we learn from storytelling that we can take and apply to telling our stories in new ways mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fascinating and in your um autobi- autobiography your study of autobiography i guess i should say um did you delve into theater and theatrical stories oh you know I did not. Um, my my master's is in theater, and I did a lot of. Um, well, no, that's not true. I did. <laughs> I didn't call it theater because <laughs> my my interest initially in theater history was uh, vaudevillian women, and the and really that being very interested in how the actress as a concept was you know, you're a whore if you're an actor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is that all about? What is happening there? And then moving into vaudeville of, okay, so now we have women in comedy. We have women who are doing cross-dressing roles and playing with that. And that's kind of led me to the circus. And I do talk about in my dissertation, um, fat women uh, and the, the sideshow of the fat lady and how that performance changed uh, from the mid mid 1800s, 19th century to the 1920s as different ideas about uh, fatness changed. So how does that performance of body size change and what is the story underneath it? Like, you know, the, if you look up fat ladies just on Google, you're probably going to find the ones from the 1920s who are like wearing baby doll dresses mm-hmm. and eating candy. <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's actually kind of very gross the way that <laughs> women were infantilized. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's 
so much of a theatrical tradition, right? And the autobiography part came in where these performers would sell real life stories about themselves that were totally made up. They were fake. They were uh-huh. written by, you know, marketers, um, but they were passed off as autobiography and people believed it. And that's the, the interesting thing to me about autobiography is everybody assumes it's just natural raw truth mm-hmm. when in fact it is produced and performed in very specific theatrical ways. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm also thinking about how in theater, it's not impossible, obviously, uh, to tell your own story in like a pure autobiographical form, but it becomes more difficult as you add in more producers and production elements and designers and the writer and then a performer if it's not you. And like as you add in more and more like produced theater elements, um, it I think it removes the story more and more from being a pure autobiography. Yeah. I don't know. Are you watching, um, bossy burden? No, I, I know. I, I feel like such a bad theater person. I should be probably. <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> we, just, it's just... we just finished in my defense, my family and I just finished a complete rewatch of game of Thrones. So oh, well, like, all but... of our TV time for the last couple of months is just, that's, <laughs> that's all we've totally done. fine. <laughs> well, there's really, it's impossible to give a spoiler for this show right. because it's, it's history about a, it's history, right? It's about we know what happens in the end, right? Um, but there's this really interesting part near the end where and Bob Fosse did all that jazz, which is semi autobiographical. Like we we know that that's not new. So there's this super interesting thing where you have a fictional show that's uh, doing a biography, a fictionalized biography of a person who made a movie a. Uh, that was a fictionalized version of his life being played by another actor. Like, <laughs> Miranda plays Bob Bossy in the movie, all that jazz. They say, like, come on. They, I don't know what it is. a very weird scene, but they're like, come on, be your... They, they have Bob Bossy go through the scene that Lin-Manuel just did. And he, and he says, like, come on, Bob, it's your life. Do it. It, it was like company, and they're like, come on, Bobby, you know, (laughs) you know how this ends or whatever. So yeah, I mean, and when I, I do a little bit of coaching with people who want to write their own autobiography and my first like piece of advice to them is you got to write enough so that it is not your story anymore, which is a weird thing to say, but when you, like you said, when you start bringing in different kinds of creators, the editing process, you know, it, it transforms into, mm-hmm. you know, just from the raw experience that you had into a text, into a production. And that's what's, even when I read memoir now, I have to remember like, oh, this isn't, this isn't the raw experience. This is a product of that experience. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really interesting way um, to think about writing your own autobiography. Yeah. And I mean, in the smallest sense, even someone telling their own story, whether it's been, this thing happened to me five minutes ago, or, you know, old grandma, like when I was a kid, this is what I lived. There's always that filter and that lens, even just of time, even if it is as raw and pure as possible. Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. (laughs) I have so many questions. I'm like, let's just spend like three hours talking about this. (laughs) Okay. So Dr. Kate... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so happy. <laughs> um, so we already chatted a little bit about kind of what you studied and your current like interests. Um, but give us a, a 
sort of a snapshot of your journey. Um, how does theater play into what you're doing now? What, how did you get started in theater? How did it lead to your doctorate and all of the amazing um, body work you're doing now? Oh, well, it's <laughs> such a, I feel like it's such a curve. You caught me at a great time to tell this story. Um, because if you had asked me this question two years ago, I would, it would have had a hard stop in the present of, I don't do theater anymore, or I used to be involved in theater. And um, it, it was sort of, it's such a homecoming and a return to what I love. So I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, the, the very, I have been performing since I could hold a microphone. And I know this because my mom would record us, me. <laughs> I have a younger brother and sister, but it was always me with the microphone uh, standing in front of the TV and singing. And she would record us. She would put on musicals and I would sing along to the musicals and all of that. We would, we would do like Oprah style interviews where we would record each other. And that's just always been a part of my personality. I love an audience. I love holding a microphone. That's just the way it is. And so I did school plays and was in high school theater. And, um, you know, one of those traumatic acting stories where uh, you can't see this listeners, but I'm kind of a big lady and I always have been a big person. And I had an acting teacher tell me that fat girls don't get cast at SNL, which is all I wanted to do when I was in high school. And mm -hmm. I couldn't accept the idea that um, I would have to play a character like be a character actor. I wanted to be an ingenue and that was never going to happen. And so if I couldn't have that, then I wasn't going to do anything. So I spent the next 10 years or so just slowly retreating from the stage. First, I, I went from being, you know, chorus girl, character actor to assistant director to stage manager. And that's what I went to uh, college for is to learn to be a stage manager. And I never really thought of any other career path except something in theater. And Stage management seemed to be the next best thing. If I couldn't be on stage, at least I could be next to the stage or, you know, behind the scenes somewhere. And then, um, you know, I didn't have enough confidence to be a stage manager, which sounds weird unless you are a stage manager. Yes. <laughs> so then I went back to school for my master's in theater history because I thought if I can't be next to the stage, I can study the stage. And it's just the slow regression until I woke up one day working in a library as a technology trainer for a university and I could see the theater building from my office and I talked to somebody about that one day and I was really excited about it I said oh you know it's so great that I'm I'm on the humanities floor where all the plays are in the library and I can see the theater from my office window and they said don't you think that's a little sad Mm. don't you belong in that building? I was like, oh man. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of thinking that, that got me thinking about how body image and, you know, this, this war I had waged with myself for so long took away that confidence and, and what could my life had been like if one, I had the confidence to do what AD Bryant is doing now, right? She, she's a fat woman on SNL. Uh, and also, you know, the, the environment. Because in the 90s, that was true. My, my theater teacher was not lying. That was a true fact. And I, I realized that it came out of a place of compassion, but it's, it's so easy to get derailed and think that this isn't the kind of life for you. So uh, when I write or speak about body image, it's, it's a return to the stage. So that's great. 
And it's also a way to share that message that, you know, healing from body shame is for a lot of people at the core of doing what what you want to do. And so that's what I always try to be a model for is it's never too late to do that healing work and find your place back where you're supposed to be. Yeah. I love that thought too. I mean, it is worth healing our relationship with our body in its own right, but I love the idea that doing that healing work lets you just step more fully into who you are and what you like your, your true path, like to use like super hippy dippy words, but, um, yeah. So it's like, it's like important work to do just for itself, but it also is for a greater purpose as well. Yeah. There were so many, yeah, that, that true path, you know, when I think back to those early experiences in plays and I would do talent shows, I was in first grade singing this ridiculous song about St. Patrick's day. It had words like trip over them. I was seven. And I, I remember just being so happy getting up and singing. It wasn't a stage fright thing. It, nothing like that. And every time as a grown up, when someone I think that's why I got into teaching because you get an audience three times a day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and when I put those two things together, I was like, oh, right. Because I, I love teaching because that's what you're supposed to say, that you love teaching. I don't think I love teaching as much as I love performing teaching. Mm-hmm. I love being in front of people and helping them through something. Um, so it's like, yeah, that that has always been the path and everything that I've done is sort of you know, wound itself around the center of give me a microphone and let me talk to people. Yeah. I love that. So tell us about what you are doing now. Like where is that microphone and what are you telling people about? (laughs) Great question. Um, (laughs) It's in two ways. You know, I'm always doing all kinds of things. So the first way that it's coming through is through my speaking work. And I speak about self-care and and the autobiography of self-care. What are we telling ourselves about self-care? How do we change the conversation with others about self-care that's less actually about the self and more about creating a community of care. And it's also about body image and creativity and how to use creativity in body image healing. There's a, there's a lot of work that I do there. The other is that I'm in a band now. What? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I started in October and I would tell people all the time, oh, I want to be in a cover band. I want to be in a cover band. And then I met somebody at a party because I tell people this goal all the time. Uh-huh. And she goes, oh, I'm in a band. You want to come to practice? Yes. So what do you do in the band and what is, what kind of band is it? I sing. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And we, we, uh, perform blues, rock and country favorites. Amazing. And where, if someone wanted to go see your band, where, <laughs> where in the world? Right now you? you should probably be in central Illinois because that's, that's <laughs> where we play. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm learning to play the guitar. I mean, a lot of things have become possible with this new uh, journey of healing, right? I'm learning <laughs> to play the guitar so I can play out, you know, in different places and um, kind of use, yeah, speaking and writing has always been a, a thing for me, but, you know, music too. I think that's one of those things that I said I could never do. I mm-hmm. could, can't see me, but I'm wagging my finger. Like, <laughs> you can't do that. You're not a musician. You're a writer. I'm like, well, who says? So... Yeah. yeah, I'm doing that. It's great. It's been a great, you know, uh, I don't say side hustle, but it's yeah. a thing that I do. 
And um, talk about a homecoming, like that, that word came up earlier in our conversation too, that your original like memories are of having that microphone and standing in front of the TV and singing along with musicals. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe now you don't have a TV behind you, but there you are <laughs> doing the things. The whole band, the whole live band. That's great. <laughs> um, and I'm also, um, I'm in the ed tech space. So when I said I was teaching technology, um, at a university, I was, I was doing like teaching, teaching people how to use their email, you know? Mm-hmm. So here's a, here's a session on Google drive. Here's a session on Google docs and all of that. Um, which again, I love cause it's in front of an audience teaching them something, but, um, there was that, there was a little bit of that creativity in terms of performance that I was missing. And, and by performance, I mean, um, like creating scripts or creating, you know, plays or things. It was just something that was missing. And I got the opportunity um, to join an ed tech startup called the Young Leader Project as their learning experience writer. And so now I am creating um, scripts and characters and it's like taken all of my theater training because uh, I left out the part where I worked as a, a theater teacher for a while. So I taught puppetry and acting and uh, all the things you would teach high schoolers in a theater program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm bringing all of that experience to my teaching experience. And it's just a beautiful opportunity to create, uh, to create something that kids we're teaching kids leadership skills. So to impact another generation and, and give them some of that confidence to be the leaders in their own lives that I could have used when I was 10. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned that it it all like rolled off your tongue because obviously you talk about these things a lot, but I would love to hear your personal definition of self-care because it's that is a phrase that for sure is thrown around with that we just talk about like, oh, we should all practice self-care, but it has such so many different definitions and so many different ways that it lives in the world. So how do you think about that? I think about self-care in a way that starts from a really kind of academic base, which is the idea of the self. And the self is the conception of you. So if you are thinking about yourself as a certain kind of person, the care that you apply to that is what's going to bring that vision more fully. So for example, um, if you want to be the kind of self that is uh, emotionally available for the people in your lives, then the care for that would be doing things like resting and uh, regulating your emotions and asking for help when you need it. Those are the kinds of actions that, that support that version of self. Uh, I think that the self word though gets, gets really tripped up. The thing that I realized that I was doing in my life was I was, um, I was in charge of the, everything about what I needed for self-care. So for example, I wrote a lot of my dissertation, uh, on a treadmill at the gym because I was practicing self-care, right? I was getting exercise and the gym had childcare. So I would drop my son off at the childcare, do my workout, write a little bit, and that would be one of the sessions. But I, I still didn't feel like I was getting anywhere because I was in charge of clearing my schedule, packing up my kid, making sure that the childcare was open, like doing all these steps. And then getting on the treadmill and then writing and then doing all of those things. So I, there was no support behind it. And I think that when we're thinking about self-care as a singular activity, that's where we get into trouble. And that's where it kind of falls by the wayside. Like, of course I can't, I don't have time for self-care because I'm caring for all these other people and things in my life. But if you take the idea that 
self-care is something that we do for ourselves and others, then it, it normalizes it. I think it's not an add-on or extra. So one of the ways that I've started doing that um, with my husband is that we don't ask each other, how's it going? I think that's a pretty common thing in, in relationships, even just friendships or family, you know, how's it going? How are you doing? Well, when somebody asks me that, all I can think about is everything that's happening in the iceberg background of my life. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. This is the autobiography, right? That mm-hmm. what do I share about myself in this moment? And it usually just comes out as I'm fine. It's good. It's fine. <laughs> because if I actually start telling you how, how is it going, whew, you're going to get a whole deluge of things. So we've started saying, how can I help you? Hmm. What do you need to do your best work today? You know, just making it a very concrete, actionable thing. Because then if he says, how can I help today? Or what do you need today? I can go, you know, I'm really overwhelmed and I have to make an appointment for the dogs at the vet. Can you do that? Yes, I can do that. Great. (laughs) You know, and it's, and that's, that's what we expect from each other. So that's how I think of self-care in a very long-winded way to talk Yeah, about. no, that's fantastic. I love it. I think the more we think about it, the more clear everyone can be about their own personal definition and what it looks like for them. So that's really helpful to hear. Okay, next question. Um, tell us about a vivid memory that you have of the theater. Oh, where to begin? I know. So- Usually the first one that pops into your head is a mm-hmm. pretty good one. Yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. So uh, I had... It was my sophomore year of high school, and it was my first play that I had done on the stage crew. I had either had, you know, kind of acting roles or that sort of thing. And this was in, you know, when I was really little. Now high school, it's a whole different ball game, right? So I helped build the set for The Sound of Music. And because I was on stage crew, I wasn't on running crew, so I got to sit in the audience the very first opening night. Now, I had seen this play done, you know, how many ever times we had recorded it. Opening night, and I'm, I'm watching the show, and uh, it's the climb every mountain scene, right? And they bring out the big paper mache mountain range, and the nuns all get on it, and they stand, and they start singing climb every mountain. And I was just completely overcome with an emotion I can't even name right now. But I remember thinking, I built that. Mm-hmm. I made that happen. And whatever small part that I had in it, it, I saw it bringing people so much joy and I'm getting tingly thinking about it now, but just to know that I had a part in making something that made people feel a certain way was just magical. And I knew I never wanted to, to leave. And from then on, I said, I'm going to be in the theater. I have to do this for the rest of my life. Did you ever have that same like tingly experience when you were on stage? Ooh, Good question. I did. I did. It was a couple of years later. Uh, we did Hello, Dolly. And I wanted to be Dolly Levi. I never had a lead role in anything, but I was convinced that this was the role for me because I had watched Barbara Streisand in that movie hundreds of times. I practiced over the summer mowing the lawn and singing the songs really loud. <laughs> it was just magical. And then I got to the audition and the music started playing. I opened my mouth and nothing came out. <gasps> oh, no. Not even a squeak. It just, my throat completely dried up and no sound came out. 
It was horrible. Oh, no. But I got so I was the assistant director for that show, and I got to play a bit part. I think it was Rose. I think her name was Rose somebody. But she comes in in the beginning of the second act, and she's got this, like, string of medical complaints. And it's right before, before the parade passes by because it reminds Dolly of, you know, old age and everything. So I come out all hobbly, and I, I give my line about whatever I'm giving. And the audience laughed, like, mm. Landed that joke and I walked off. They applauded for me. I did it. I thought it was this bit throwaway part, but I made it something that, you know, made people laugh. Yeah. Great. Yeah. There's, um, I think the more, okay. So when I think about like acting in high school, and kind of having some of those smaller parts that feel like, oh man, this is like, I'm not the lead and it's just not even that important. But the more, uh, maybe it's age or experience or something, but I'm like, the writer put that there for a reason. Like that character would not walk on stage and make those jokes if it wasn't valuable in some way. And I think it's hard to see that when you're young and your ego is, you know, as large as your body. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it can be hard to see through that sometimes. Um, awesome. So what's the most important lesson that you have learned in the theater? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, oh. I know. Is your brain swimming? Um, you know, I don't know if there's one. Oh, there is one lesson <laughs> that I keep coming back to, especially in this political climate. Oh, gosh. Okay. Which is, um, well, I don't know if I can say swears on the podcast. You can say swears on the podcast. And this is a direct quote. That's why it's important. Uh, My least favorite acting teacher who gave me a terrible grade in acting class in college um, gave us the advice that I'll never forget, which is you never play a shit. And I didn't understand what that meant for a long time. But it's basically the idea when you are playing a villain or an antagonist or someone that the audience is not supposed to root for, you can't play it straight bad. Mm. You have to, there's always something behind those actions that may not make sense to you or the audience or humanity, but makes sense to that character. And Mm -hmm. that is how you play a villain. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. So I think about this. You know, when I go see Thanos and uh, the Avengers or I see characters where I'm like, how can you possibly justify the horrors that you are causing? And then I have to remember that there's got to be something behind it. There's got to be. It has been one of the um, more, it's kind of one of the things that's keeping me afloat with all of the political news is that I may not agree with what's happening. I might think that things are just terrible, but there's something about knowing that, 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 that reasoning gives that person humanity Mm. that kind of makes me, it gives me a bit of perspective that I might not have had. So that's definitely a lesson, but that's not the, that's not the one I want to leave with. (laughs) I mean, I hope it helps somebody. I think, and the, I think it's it's a little weird, but the importance of listening. And you know how when you were playing those those bit characters, those side characters, and your your action is to listen, you have to be you have to look like you're listening. <laughs> That's so important. And I think that working on a team in any industry or any 
you know, any group kind of setting, um, to know that you have a role in silence and to be present and active in silence um, has really stuck with me in thinking about uh, what what my role is on any kind of team, but also knowing that uh, listening is an active process. It's, you know, you know how that is when you're yeah. like, heard these lines a million times. Mm-hmm. I gotta pretend I'm paying attention. <laughs> Uh, I was definitely in a show um, that shall remain unnamed, but the person with whom I had my, I had one really just good juicy scene. It was like, it was another one of those parts. It was like smallest part in the show, but I was like, I'm going to just own this 12 minutes I've got on stage. Um, and uh, the person I was in the scene with never learned their lines. Like never. Uh, I think our f- opening night was like the most accurate time if you compared it to the script. And so I damn well had to listen because <laughs> if I wasn't listening, no. like I had to rewrite that scene almost every night. <laughs> wow. Be like, how do I make sure <laughs> that the important information <laughs> that comes up later in the show <laughs> gets expressed, <laughs> even though we just skipped seven <laughs> lines of important exposition anyway. So yeah, it's important. That it matters. Time we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that was fascinating. (laughs) I think I've also learned one of the things that is a lesson. I think I finally can like check it off on my, my little like checklist of like life lessons to learn is that I don't always have to respond. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that I am so much better at now is just knowing when I don't need to add words to the current conversation. That is still an open checkbox on my list. (laughs) But I would agree that that is a really important lesson. It is not easy. Well, I think for self-care too. I mean, knowing, knowing when to let it be, knowing that the white space and the white noise is okay. You don't have to fill your calendar with things. You don't have to fill your life with things. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a, a creative drive in me and why I'm so drawn to the theater is the, the constant action. I mean, mm-hmm. action is the, the shark of theater. If it's not continually moving, then it dies. Right. So just knowing that it's, <laughs> I get it. Action is the shark of theater. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have nothing. Right. And, and even the yes. And like, we can't just stop. There's <laughs> just yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna meditate on that one. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you could not do some stuff, you could be silent for a while. <laughs> you really can, and also some of the most powerful moments in theater happen in silence and or stillness. Mm-hmm. And it's about finding when each of those things is necessary, which is the thing that's going to serve what's happening right now the most. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's a challenge that you're facing right now? Well, same thing, you know, knowing, knowing, like, like the gambler, no one to fold them, no one to hold them, no one to run. Making decisions about what comes next is, mm-hmm. is a challenge that I am, I am facing right now and where to put my energies. And I think that because I'm coming back to so much of the theater, it's, you know, taking what I know now and deciding do I, do I focus on speaking? Do I focus on my writing? 
what what happens now? Do I focus on my music? You know, I, I always have so many options and um, really pruning that down and focusing on the things that will have the most impact. And also, Rick, I'm, I'm surprisingly literal. So when I think about helping people heal from body shame, I think of that in a very concrete, literal way. Like, I will help you. I will coach you. I will talk to you about it. Um, but so many of the creative uh outlets that we have also do i'm thinking of shrill you know it's on hulu and it's it's pretty it's pretty literal in uh in the way that it's uh it's activism plays out but it's also a tv show right and trying to find the balance between i don't have to hit you over the head with these lessons about self-care maybe i can create something a play maybe or a show or something um that that does a better job of merging my literal want to help with these things and my creative impulse to create something that people are really drawn to. I think that's of where the power of story comes in because as humans, um, and I would be interested to see if anyone has researched this. So I'm just going to like pretend like what I'm saying is true, although I don't have any way to <laughs> back it up. But my feeling is that we learn more from the stories of others than we do from just like the moral at the end, right? Like Aesop's fables. We learn from the story. Whereas if you just got like the sentence that's at the end of the Aesop's fable, like therefore, you know, what's the the rabbit and the, the tortoise and the hare? What is that yeah. one? Yeah, that's the one. Tortoise slow and steady wins the race, right? If someone just says slow and steady wins the race, um, you'd be like, okay, fine. I'm just going to keep living my life. But you, when you have that story to come back to you, it'd be like, oh, wait, but it was the tortoise that won. Uh, so maybe I should just be more slow and steady. Um, so I just think that we internalize things through story a lot more than we do through, um, yeah, through the hammer, right? The hammer beating You're people on the right track, so to speak. Because uh, I did some of that research. Amazing! Oh my gosh, I'm talking to the right person. <laughs> and my my argument is that autobiography teaches us how to live because it teach. You know, the more we hear these stories, the more they get ingrained in our our meta narrative of life. And that's how we think we have to do things. And I also think there's a bit of an impulse when you're struggling with something, if you're a memoir reader or an autobiography reader, and you're struggling with something, you want to find those stories that sound like you, like, Mm -hmm. I want to know what they did to overcome this thing that I'm struggling with. And uh, I mean, that, that's how it comes up in ad copy too. You know, we get these online ad, um, uh, how to write an ad that will get people to buy. And it's all about start with your story, tell your rags to riches story, you know, and, and that teaches people that it's possible. And I think that that is really the, the double edged sword of stories is that it shows us what's possible in positive, productive ways and in tearing down, you know, dividing ways. And as we all choose what kind of story we want to tell and hear, we can enact change in those areas that are most meaningful to us. Is there, so this is, I don't even know what I, how to formulate this question and it probably has nothing to do with anything, but I'm just curious if there are stories and biographies that are told that don't have like 
a message, right? Or that don't have like the, this is what you can learn from me or like, this is how I overcame. Like, what if it was just like, man, I tried this thing and I failed so hard and now my life sucks or whatever, you know? So if there isn't like a purpose, I don't know. Yeah, Do I mean, tell those stories. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but they're not seen as inspirational, and right. I think that's really that's really the difference. You could you could tell the story. There's a, a my favorite collection of essays is called Meaty by Samantha Irby, and they're just <laughs> like somebody threw a bunch of stuff at the wall. But I I can read the change in them. But she's not trying to inspire anybody. She's not trying to say, like, I did this and this is what's happening. And I think that's why I love them and what is inspirational for me is that, like, they're just her story. And that's great. And now we know. Now that she's done that, we have a lesson that you can tell a story without having to have the pretty wrapped up ending. But we are obsessed all of us. I mean, and this is this goes back to ancient Greek theater, right? Catharsis, arouse and purge, pity and fear. We want to be taught through story that it might be bad, but it's going to get okay. That's what drama is. It's the conflict and the conflict resolution. So when we're telling our own stories, it's not a complete story until the conflict has been resolved. And so often autobiography is the conflict of self. You know, there's 36 plot lines or something like that. Autobiography is self against self. So you have to have that, that wrap up in some way. And the easy way to do that is to say, it was this way and it was bad. And now it's this way and it's good. And it's just, it's just easy. You know, if we were going to create a whole new story structure that did not do that, it would be, it's, I believe it's possible. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> but it would be so hard because you have to break people out of storytelling modes that they've been hearing their entire lives. Yeah. And would it be engaging? Like, would it be even worth the effort to create this new story structure? Yeah. If, if everyone's like, uh, I don't like it. Right. Like, I don't get it. I don't like it. I'm out. <laughs> and maybe, maybe it does. I mean, that's how we get movements and that, you know, that that's what different developments in theater history and narrative history are all about is we didn't like the way this story was being told. So we changed it. Um, but in the now that doesn't really happen. It takes a little while for that, for that to change. So I'm excited about the future of that and whatever my role is in it. Uh, I'm excited to find out. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> What is something that you do in your theatrical work? And I'm, you can encompass like all, like the band and the speaking and all of the sort of performance work that you do, that if I applied that to my daily life, it would make my life better. Oh, ritual. Ooh, talk about that. Well, it's so important. And I do this, you know, I would do this in my performing days and my writing day. I do it still today. Um, ritual plays a huge role in the work that I do because it's a centering and focusing activity, but it also helps me. It it helps with character. It helps with, okay, now is the time that we do this. Um, I remember hearing the advice from my acting teachers and just, you know, being a part of productions where I was like, I don't really want to do this today. And they'd say, you got to leave it all outside. That doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore for the next hour and a half. We're going to be here and we're going to be focused on this. And so, you know, coming up with a ritual to say, this is what's happening now is, is so important. And I think that, um, I actually just 
started a new ritual yesterday in a very kind of concrete, practical way. Um, I work from home and my son is six, so he's home from the school day. And this is my first summer working from home, so I wasn't prepared for whatever challenges that would bring. Uh, But in the past two days, I realized that the divide between home and or working and playing is skewed. He thinks because I'm home, I'm available to play. And my I husband thinks the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to tell him, you know, no, I'm not, I can't work. I can't work. I can't work. And it just, you know, it really felt guilty about it. And then I said, you know what? I need a ritual here. So whenever I'm done working, I have Alexa play five o'clock world by the Vogues. And then we know that it's time to, I'm home now. I'm my mom now and I can, I can play. And he said to me today, did you tell dad about the special music? (laughs) No, why don't you go tell him? And he was so excited to say when the music plays, that's when mom can play again. Oh, that's so great. That's adorable. So how do you signal to him um, that it's time, that it's work time? Like how do you transition between morning time and work time? That we have not figured out yet. We're on day two. But I'm going to use that as a solution. So, you know, if you're thinking about applying ritual into your everyday life, it's it's not about like, this is my special time and I I center and I light a candle. I mean, it can be. I do that for some things. But um, it could just be as simple as like, okay, as soon as I walk in the door at the end of the day, I I put on the face. Yeah. Thing like, okay, it's time now. Um, so a song could be a ritual, a certain place where you do something is a ritual, uh, a word, you know, if you, if you have a hard time, you know, kind of turning off at the end of the day, when you come in, you could just say, honey, I'm home. And then that's your cue that you can decompress and it's home time now. So that is what I would apply to everyday life. Yeah. Um, the, there are so many great examples of that and so many ways to incorporate ritual to like signal to your brain and your psyche and your spirit and everything that like, this is the mode we're moving into. Um, one that came up in the podcast episode that was released on May 28th with Autumn Mitchell is she has four different notebooks that she uses for different things. Mm -hmm. So one is for creative writing, thinking, one is for just profound thoughts, one is for organizing and scheduling, and each one is a different color and a different texture. So when she goes in, like uh, her profound thoughts, one is uh, this beautiful velvet blue with a Pisces symbol on it. And I was like, that's such a beautiful, like tactile and visual way to move into like I'm doing deep thinking right now. So there's like some really beautiful, simple things you can do. I love it so much. That's yeah, actually that's- something I keep thinking. I, I am not, um, I don't have strong rituals for the, in some, there's some gaps in my life where a ritual would be really helpful. So thank you for like lighting that fire. Yeah. Maybe and it's if, a candle. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I was thinking about, you know, it's so, it's so embodied. I know that as theater practitioners, we're used to that idea of things starting with the body, but I love that idea that she has different textures for the notebooks. So if you're a texture person, do something tactile, you know, like think about washing your hands, like putting some water on your hands might be a signal that something is happening. Or if you're a smell person, maybe that's the candle of song, you know, just thinking about how, how you experience the world best might give you some ideas for what kinds of rituals you could put in your life. Absolutely. 
Amazing. That's a really great tip. Um, should theater be, uh, like a curriculum and I'm, I'm making air quotes here with my fingers because I don't necessarily mean a like codified schooling curriculum, but a, a source of learning or a place of learning or a mode of learning, should it be universally accessible to all of the humans on the planet? Oh, absolutely. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, theater is about human experience and, you know, talking about those plot lines, it always starts with man, you know, we can, we can substitute the, you know, people, we'll just yeah. say people, human, okay, human versus somebody else. And that, that's why we have it. And so to understand human experience, socially, psychologically, historically, culturally, it is, I think it is required uh, to do that. One, because it's such a corollary to their real lives. We have conflict, we have drama, we have storytelling, we have all of the pieces of it. Um, so when we can manipulate that as an art form, it can reflect back to us what we need. And I think we've seen that throughout theater history. Mm -hmm. Um, but also it is of the body and that's the one thing that we all have however it manifests for you, everybody has a body. We are constantly in motion and we are constantly, you know, participating in the world in an embodied way. So uh, as a form of expression, it should be available to everyone at whatever, you know, level best suits everybody. Mm -hmm. I used to, um, while you were speaking, I was kind of, the back of my brain was going to like, uh, like pre-Greek rituals and like harvest things and like sacrificial whatevers. Um, and I was just, I had this flash of myself when I was um, young before I had access to theater and I would wander around my backyard and I had this old Tic Tac container. This is the weirdest thing, but I, probably lots of people have like parallel experiences. I had this old Tic Tac container and I would walk around and I would pick like like a perfect clover from the, we didn't have grass, but we had lots of weeds. So we'd pick like the perfect weed clover and I would like put it in the tic-tac and then I would go like collect um, like a drop of dew from another leaf over here. And I would like do all these things and I would like make up music and I would just wander around like doing these things that felt so incredibly meaningful that like had no purpose whatsoever other than just like me doing things that felt really important. <laughs> I'm like a six-year-old girl just wandering around with like a tic-tac container collecting like bits of plant <laughs> and water. <laughs> oh. And I think that's like, maybe that was my first instinct towards performance and towards the ritual that is, that is theater, right? Yeah. I knew all those debates about ritual versus performance versus drama theater. What, what makes theater different from anything else? And it's, I remember the, the primary one is an audience. You have to have an audience. Mm -hmm able to do theater and uh it seemed very like I get it sure it, it that's what makes it different than everyday life is the audience but um but you know what six-year-old me like there was an audience mm -hmm. I was absolutely performing for somebody like I was having the conversation I was performing the thing it, in my experience it was for like there was an audience there I was being watched which yeah. again it sounds really weird but here we are no no I, I get <laughs> it I think that's why it, it always struck me as odd because 
you know, just because you have a sitting down audience to perform to that, that seems very limiting in terms of audience. And even, I guess, if you want to talk about all those times, you know, I'd imagine an audience. Yeah. Still, that was still a performance or, you know, my, there were animals outside and I up, you know, that, that imaginative play. And I think, I think maybe, um, all of that imagining is about the same things that theater wants to do, which is the, the vision of making a world a better place. So you're collecting all of these perfect things mm-hmm. as, as a demonstration and as a performance of this is what a perfect world looks like. And I just, I, I am not so tied to the idea that there are really strict rules about what is or is not theater. And I think that's why I say it should be available to everyone as long as we're breaking down these barriers of, oh, this is or is not theater. Yeah, yeah. You are not the first person to bring that up in answer to this question. <laughs> I don't want to say universal, but I think it is uh, a thing that we think about a lot is like, what even is theater? What's the definition of it? What are the boundaries? Does it have boundaries? Should it have boundaries? Can we mm-hmm. just like all be theater all the time? I don't know. <laughs> what does that even look like? I think opening that up also helps, especially if you feel like you've gotten away or you had a dream and now it's not that. It opens up some possibilities to participate that you may not have thought were available before. Because mm-hmm. I certainly experienced different times in my life where it's like, well, I'm not, or I used to, or some some kind of barrier. And once I not only opened up to the possibility that this was okay for me, but reimagined what that might look like, like teaching as theater, like mm-hmm. that makes sense. Or being on stage as a way, or even if you're thinking about getting back into theater and auditioning for a community show or putting on a one person show for some friends, you are participating in theater. You have done it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you set up too high a bar for what success looks like, then you're missing out on a lot of opportunities to, to be on that path that you want to be on. Mm -hmm. That's really, really true. I think uh, Wally Sean does like living room play readings, Mm -hmm. which are now of course, like one of the like, hot ticket things in LA, you know, but, um, but things like that, where you can just get together a group of four or five friends and read a script out loud. And how many great companies started that way? A lot of them, a lot of them. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, can you please, this is the final question. Oh, I know we're already there. Will you please plant a seed in the hearts, minds, spirits, or all three of the people who are listening today? Hmm. We got some dead air. This is a great question. I Thank really you. Glad that you ask this. Plant a seeds in the heart and minds. And, oh. Okay. <laughs> I'll bring this back to autobiography. What? I, it, I'm going to borrow this from the Muppets because the Muppets. Oh are, my God. I love it so much. I'm so excited. My, like, uh, oh, I start crying when I think about the Muppets. Um, <laughs> But there's a line in <laughs> there's a line in the Muppet movie in a song that nobody knows that's my favorite and and it it just this is what I would love everybody to think about. So in the end of the Muppet movie, they have a line and it says, "Life's like a movie. Write your own ending. Keep believing. Keep pretending. We've done just what we set out to do." So, what would happen 
if you changed the story of your life and what would that ending be if you could write any kind of ending? Mm-hmm. 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 I love it. I want to watch them up a movie. <laughs> I, know. I'm, I might actually do that as well and be like, where's that line? Um, saying Manhattan is my favorite. It just has a lot more slapstick comedy, but if I'm looking for a real like tearjerker, get confident, I can do this and be a creative person. I watch the Muppet movie. (laughs) That's a good, that's a hot tip. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dr. Kate Brown, um, if someone who's listening today wants to follow you on social media, learn more about the work that you're doing, maybe hire you for something or just be friends, uh, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Best way to connect with me is on Instagram at Dr. Dr. Kate Brown, D-R-K-A-T-E-B-R-O-W-N-E. On Instagram, I'm also on Twitter at the same handle. And you can see my varying autobiography in action because I'm kind of two different people on both social media platforms. So that might be fun. And of course, there are all kinds of links to connect with me on either of those platforms. Awesome. Isn't that fascinating? I find the same thing between Instagram and Twitter. um, And I think the two platforms just are conducive to different things. Like on Twitter, I'm much more... Um, cynical and sassy. And on Instagram, I think it's much more about the pretty and the aesthetics of things. My Instagram is all about brunch and exercise. (laughs) And then Twitter is all like, I've been thinking about technology and accessibility. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I have to be totally transparent that like, I'm a super fan person of you. I really love your work. And I'm so excited that I got to like talk to you more. Um, So thank you for your time and for sharing your thoughts and your energy and your expertise with everyone who's listening in with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Emily. As always, it is wonderful to talk to you. We should do it more often. We should. I actually um, really agree with that. We should. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, Kate. Have an awesome day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends about this podcast so that they can subscribe too. If you would like to follow us on social media, you can do that at FYL Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or at Find Your Light Podcast on Facebook. You can email suggestions or nominations at any time to podcast at emilystamets.com. And remember that The Tale of Despero is going to Berkeley Rep uh, later in this season. So please, if you are anywhere near Berkeley or if you're currently anywhere near San Diego, please see the show. It was phenomenal. That's all for today. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.